Well, hey, I'm super excited. Uh, if you're new to Door of Hope, you're a visitor, I want to welcome you. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are really glad that you're here. And today we're going to begin um, a seven-week series uh, through the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. One of the things that I think is really important for us is a community, a community that exists uh, for Jesus, uh, that exists as a, as, a, as a movement of grace uh, that desires to see revival in our city. We have to anchor ourselves continually uh, in this incredible question that Jesus himself posed to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And I think that that is the most important, the most central question that we can ask. We're gonna have lots of questions around different aspects of our faith and different aspects of the scripture. I remember when I first became a believer and, and I was working with this atheist uh, who is a really dear friend of mine, and when I became a believer while we were working together, so I went from being this guy that partied with him to all of a sudden a Christian, and he was so disgusted uh, that I was a Christian, and he would just poke at my faith every single day we worked together. It was really, it was a great, uh, it was a great like growing experience of how to maintain one's faith and, and how someone who is a really dear friend could quickly turn and become so hostile because to him, the gospel is foolishness, that our God is not a good God. But what was fascinating in all of our conversations and all of the controversies that he would continually bring up, and often he would bring up questions that I could, it's, it's easy to poke holes at something you don't want to believe in. And he would begin with questions like this. So, Noah's Ark. What'd they do with the freshwater fish if the whole world was flooded? Did he have a freshwater tank on the boat? I'm like, man, I don't know. And, you know, and it would have been foolish for me. He's like, how did all the marsupials get in Australia? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. And for me, the thing that brought me to faith was not my ability to, to answer every puzzling question that I find in Scripture. No, for me, it was the central question, who is Jesus? And when I began to look at the teachings and the, and the sayings of Jesus and the life of Jesus and even, and even the explanation of Jesus through the New Testament, what I found is, is this I can put my faith in totally. And once I was able to accept the reality of who Christ is and the exclusive claims that he made about himself as being the one who is the way to the Father, the direct revelation of God, that he is God in the flesh, revealing God to us, a God who is willing to enter into the brokenness of the human in, of the human experience and to take that brokenness into himself. The, the God who says man cannot reach God in his own effort, it requires God's divine intervention. That, that when I began to see that, that every move I made toward him, he was already previous. He was already the one drawing, already the one wooing. But here's the problem is that often we forget the most basic tenets of our faith. And we start getting caught up in those questions that my friend Dan asked me, and we forget the one whom we placed our faith in. And I have become so convinced that Jesus is everything that he said he is, that even if I was to discover that he was, he was something created by a group of followers, 
He, his character and his personhood is so beautiful, I've often said I would have to worship those who invented him. And that's what I want us to see through this series, is the beauty of Jesus. I want us to hear his exclusive claims, because there's lots of people that say Jesus never claimed to be God. There's lots of people that say that Jesus really isn't the Son of God, but he's, he's an enlightened one, a good teacher, one we can learn basic principles for, from. But I would argue that Jesus' claims are so outrageous that we have to accept that he is either the Son of God or, as Lewis said, he's something worse. He's, he's a maniac or something even worse than that. He might be some sort of demon. Because Christianity is the only major world religion that the entire faith system is built around its founder. That he not only is the giver of the gospel, but he is its source, its center. He is the gospel himself. He is the final word of the Father. I I like this quote. I want to begin with this quote from Martin Luther. And this is what he has to say about Jesus. He says, even if God himself were to speak to me, or if all the angels were to address me, I would still not give ear to a single word concerning my salvation. Yes, I would plug my ears with lead. In worldly matters, I am willing to be credulous. But in this matter, I would not believe the voice of God, even though it were heralded with drums and fifes. I'm not sure what a fife is, but I'm going to trust it's something musical. I am resolved not to believe or hear anything save Christ alone. I will not regard anything else as the voice of God, for God has ordained that he would not communicate with man through any other medium than through Christ alone. John Calvin said something very similar when he said, whoever aspires to know God without beginning at Christ must wander in a labyrinth. And we have to understand our foundation. We have to understand where to begin. I I like David Foster Wallace, uh, right before he died, gave a speech at Kenyon College uh, for the commencement speech. And he opened up with a little parable. He said, there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? And I think that this is often, that parable is actually a profound insight into what often goes wrong in many believers' lives is that we lose our foundation. We forget the most basic principles and then nothing else makes sense. We forget what actually brings life to our lives. Well, in the seven statements, the seven I am statements uh, that they are often called in the book of John, Jesus describes himself using metaphorical language to give us an understanding of who he is and what it is that he brings to our lives. For we must remember that everything that God reveals about himself in Scripture is directly connected to his relationship with us. There are many mysteries about God that we do not understand, but what God has chosen to reveal directly corresponds to his concern and his care and his love for you. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, 
which means that Christ nourishes us and gives us strength. He says, I'm the light of the world, which means he gives us light to show the way that we should follow in that strength. He says, I am the door of the sheep, which means that he himself is the entrance into that fellowship of life. He says, I'm the good shepherd, which means he's the guardian of that fellowship who by his sacrifice wins for it new members. He says, I'm the resurrection in the life, which means he is, his, is himself the life of that fellowship, which lives by him alone. He says, I am the true vine, which means that he is even the fellowship itself, for we are incorporated into him, and it is his life that actually vitalizes us. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which means comprehensively, he himself is the way to be followed in action, the truth to be believed, and the life itself which should be lived. And this is what we're going to be exploring over the next seven weeks. Well, today, what I want to begin with is Jesus' most direct declaration, the most direct I am statement uh, found in John chapter 8 when Jesus actually looks back to Exodus and Moses at the burning bush when God reveals to Moses, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And Moses says, say, I am who I am sent you. Say, Yahweh sent you. So Yahweh and I am who I am essentially is the same reality. God's name, he says, I am who I am. I exist. I am there. There is n I have no origin. I am the creator of all things. I am the one who spoke in the universe, leapt into existence. And Jesus, in this incredible dialogue, uh, speaking in the temple, declares at the end of this conversation, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he is connecting himself. It's the most direct statement we have to Jesus making the very essential statement. And the Jews knew exactly what he was doing because they immediately picked up stones to stone him because he was making himself what? One with God. So I want us to consider Three things that Jesus says I am about, uh, beginning in John chapter 8, verse 31, and we're going to actually go to the close of the chapter, and what we're going to consider is Jesus' declaration that I am the Word of God, I am the Son of God, I am God. So beginning with I am the Word of God, in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 37, we begin with these words. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, I want you to note that, says that they had believed him. They had believed his teachings. They, had, they, they, were, they were compelled by him. They're being drawn to him. But we're going to see that that drawing becomes, uh, something happens as Jesus begins to make his exclusive claims that, that their belief quickly turns to hostility, which tells us that there's something fundamentally wrong with their belief. He says, if you abide, and that word abide literally be translated make your home, in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone, which is a ridiculous statement for the Jews to make, being that their entire history is built upon being set free from slavery to Egypt. But the point is, is what they're actually saying when they say we've never been enslaved is that we are the chosen people of God. We are right with God. And Jesus is saying you're not. And they cannot accept that. 
But what I want us to see here is, is what Jesus is saying in his teachings. When he says, if you abide in my word, if you make your home in my word, what Jesus is saying is that my teaching is my person. My words are my identity. Jesus is present exactly, entirely, and satisfactorily in the words he has spoken. In fact, Hebrews even declares this very reality when it says that God has spoken at various times in various ways through the prophets and through the scriptures, but he has in these last days spoken to us in son. That's the actual Greek. It doesn't make sense grammatically, but what it's saying is that Jesus is the final word of the Father. He is all that God has to say to us. He is all that God continues to say to us because it's not a stagnant word, a a word that has come in the past. It is a living word because it's someone. And he says this, if you abide in my word, if you make your home in my word, you are truly my disciples. This is fascinating because often there is this incredible question around what does it mean to be a disciple or how do we disciple someone? Well, here Jesus tells us what it means when you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what is he saying here? First of all, this is what Jesus is saying. If you will make your home in my word, then you are really my disciples. This is not a challenge to undertake some arduous set of disciplines. This isn't a new legalism. This, this, isn't, this isn't Jesus saying, do this thing, these disciplines, these practices. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, no, what, what he's calling them to, he says, this is a challenge to undertake this arduous set of disciplines so we can prove we are really his disciples. It is instead an invitation to live in Christ himself. And I think that this is very important because it is easy for the church to begin to turn the Christian life into a series of principles, to turn the Christian life into a ladder. Do this thing, do this thing, do this thing, then you're my disciple. And Jesus says, the only thing that makes you a disciple is that you are in me and that I am in you. That when we talk about the word of Christ and even the teachings of Christ, you can never disconnect them from Christ himself. And I think that this is one of the things that, that what's so appealing about that kind of prescriptive preaching that says, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing, is that we want, we want to be a people that are doers and so we even connect that to James's word. Hey, anyone that says they have faith um, but does not actually live out that faith is lying to themselves. That, that faith in Christ should lead to an, a life that is, that is lived in dependence upon him. But that's the thing. That dependence upon him, yes, is played out in obedience in many ways. But really what Jesus is looking for is a total and absolute trust in him. What the Jews want from him is him to be their, their Messiah that sets them free from Roman oppression and Jesus says you're not understanding the purpose of my entrance into this world my purpose for entering this world is to restore right relationship in three directions with God first then with others and then with yourselves and here is the key you have to make your home in me it is instead this beautiful invitation to essentially continue in his grace. For we're told back in John chapter six, he says this. He says, when they say, what must we do to do the work of God? He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So to make our home in his word, practically speaking, means two things. Number one, it is the decision to stick with 
I, I like Dale Brunner says that's another good translation for abide, to stick with Jesus, to make him the central note of your existence, to practice intimacy with him. He is a God who is present. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. Jesus is available. And if you're, if you're saying, I don't sense his presence, I don't hear his voice, he is the logos. And this is why we are a people of the scriptures, because all scripture is God-breathed and all of it points to Christ. And when we begin to attune our hearts to listen to him, to be a people that spend time with him, that we make time with him, we begin to pray, we begin to study his word, we begin to, begin to live at his feet, what we see is that Jesus truly has done everything for us and this is why he says, without me you can do nothing. And what he is challenging the Jewish listeners here who have believed him, that is, believed that he is something, they, they're even starting to believe maybe that he's the Messiah, but they have not put their trust in him because they don't see yet their need. And so, if it's the decision to stick with Jesus, it's also the decision to give time to listening to him. And do you spend time with him? Do you allow his word to speak to you, to reveal? I mean, it's not that hard to say that the scripture is actually, if the scripture is divinely breathed and it is living as the Holy Spirit breathes life into it, for we have not left to our own devices. We're told that those who place their faith in Jesus are born again, regenerated by his spirit, and the spirit comes as a helper, as a teacher to bring us and drive us into all that Jesus has said. And as the spirit begins to speak to us, now I've seen many, many people who are not believers who the scriptures, they may even know the scriptures, but the scripture is a dead book in their hands because it's not driven by the central belief that this is about Jesus who is the Son of God. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh who has come to meet us in our brokenness. They have turned it actually into a series of, of, of instructional teachings on how to live a better life. But let me just tell you that the teachings of Jesus apart from Jesus' life in you actually just further damn us because they're impossible. They're impossible. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What do you do with that one? You're like, yeah, no problem. That's me. That's totally me. You would be who he's talking to here if that's you. Um, so here he says this. He's, he says, listen, if you make your home in my word, you will be my disciples. So here is the disciple. What is a disciple then? A disciple is someone who makes their home in his word. A, a person who makes their life about Jesus. We turn it into this complicated thing. Discipleship often, once again, becomes this prescriptive thing of things that you do, boxes that you mark off, disciplines that you practice, when in actuality, it's about a life that follows Jesus wherever it is that he leads. And it's really about a community that follows Jesus for our discipleship happens together, life together through, commun through community groups, through gathering together. What are we doing right now? We are being disciples by the very fact that if you have come here today to meet with Jesus through the proclamation of his word, through, through the singing of songs, through the breaking of bread and the, take, and the drinking of the wine as communion, we are participating in this life together and I love this because he says this he says in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and what 
The truth will set you free. So here are the two promises that come out of it. Now, isn't it interesting that people want to start with what is the truth before they start with Jesus? But it's coming to faith in Jesus that actually leads us to truth. And this is a big question in the age in which we live, is it not? I mean, how many people have said, I need to have all these answers about these different things that I find problematic. What isn't problematic in existence? And what, what is there? Name one thing in existence that you can explain in totality. Life is built upon mystery. And the moment you remove mystery is the moment you remove, you remove romance. My wife becomes more of an enigma every day to me. Every day, an enigma. A beautiful, glorious enigma. And the longer I live with her, 23 years with this woman, and yet still I find her a mystery. One that often I, I, I misread, I misunderstand. I don't know as well as I thought I knew. And that's the beauty of marrying someone as intense as Darcy. What she would argue is that I'm the intense one in the true, in the true enigma. No, she's the enigma. But the beauty of this, my point is, is that even that which we are the most familiar with, if there isn't mystery, there's no romance. Life is mystery. And Jesus here, he says, listen, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth. So here the truth then in John's gospel is the reality of God as present in Jesus Christ. That's the point. Jesus will say, we'll consider that as the final statement we look at, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That truth is not an accumulation of information, but it is, it is personified. It is God's actual presence made known through the physical reality of Jesus. And then he says this, the second promise, not only will you know the truth, but the truth will do what? Set you free. Now we talk about truth and freedom all the time. Uh, it, it, those two words seem to, to you know, be a part of, of any sort of patriotic American proclamation and, and things that we celebrate as American citizens is, is this pursuit of truth, this pursuit of freedom. But let's, let's be clear. The kind of truth and the kind of freedom that Jesus is speaking of is not the kind of truth and the kind of freedom that our Constitution, this is not a political statement. This is about coming to a realization that Jesus is the embodiment of truth and it's coming to realization that our freedom is not the freedom to do whatever we want, but it is the freedom that has actually been, that, that comes to a realization that it is God through Jesus who has actually brought about forgiveness and reconciliation. Our freedom is in being set free from the actual bondage and death that sin brings into our lives and the separation, relational separation that, that occurs. Jesus has come to restore relationship. There is our freedom. He alone, he says, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. Our freedom becomes the freedom to do what is right, that we can begin to live in the way that God intended us to live by the power of his Spirit as we trust in him, as we make our home in him. He is the word of God. He's the final word. Everything that God has to say about himself, he has said and continues to say in his son. You wanna know what God is like? You look no further than Jesus. And no one can read through the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus and come to any conclusion that he is like any human being who has ever lived. He is 
the truth. He is our freedom. He is the Word of God. Amen. Notice what he goes on to say. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. So he's like, listen, I'm not saying that you're not Jewish people. I'm not saying that you aren't, that you aren't Israel. What I am saying is that you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now it's interesting, he begins with those who believed him. It doesn't say those who believed in him, but here it says those who believed him, he, and he's drawing out the reality and the weakness of their own faith, that their faith has not actually been placed in his personhood. And so here he begins to, to, to challenge them, and he says, actually, the true intent of your heart is not to believe in me. What you really want is me dead, because I am telling you that you cannot exist apart from me, that you are all slaves to sin. This is not a statement about who practices sin is a slave to sin, about perpetual patterns of sin, because a lot of people turn this into a passage about, uh, about well, what he's doing is he's dif differentiating those who sin occasionally versus those who um, have perpetual sin patterns. Listen, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because you all, I don't care how godly you think you are, are perpetually sinning. You didn't get up today without sinning. You didn't get to church today without being angry probably at someone who cut you off, like me, who got super mad and sinned in my mind against the cyclist who decided to just pull out in front of me because I'm a cyclist and I'm saving the world and I have the right of way and even now I'm sinning as I think about it. And that's why I bumped him. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> Get out of my way, I'm going to church. You gotta preach a message on Jesus. He loves you. Get off that bike. <laughs> listen, there is a fundamental brokenness in everything we do. What Jesus is saying is that, listen, sin is a reality in our lives and the only freedom that we can have from sin is the forgiveness that has been purchased through the blood of Jesus. And what he is telling them, he's like, if you put your trust in me, you will find that is the only escape from the enslavement that sin brings. And this is why we need to daily cast ourselves in total dependence upon him. It, it reminds us, what are they saying when they said, we don't, Abraham's our father. We don't have, what, what they're saying is, is, is that Jesus, Jesus, it, we, we're interested in you as a teacher, we're interested in you as a liberator, but we're not interested in, in recognizing that we are lost without you. We can, we can keep the law. We don't need you. And I would argue that many Christians live that way as well, that you think that there's something in you that was worth saving, that you actually can add to what Jesus has accomplished for you. You're not able to see how broken, how fundamentally lost you are. But let me just tell you, if you feel that lostness in the depth of your being, you're in a good place because Jesus came to save a person just like you. He says, the Son of Man came to save sinners. I did not come to call the righteous. These people think that they're okay. They wanna add Jesus to what they have rather than recognizing that they can't keep their faulty belief systems and their idolatry 
and their, their nationalism and their position. He's saying, he's saying, listen, I'm telling you, I am the source of life. I have come into this world because I am the one who am here to set you free from your inability to actually be the people that I've called you to be. Jesus here invites self-satisfied believers to the altar of the dissatisfied where they can be converted from their righteousness to a confession of their ties to sin and so finally into a blessed liberation. Those are the words of Dale Bruner I think is really, really insightful. These are people who believe him but are unwilling to put their trust in him exclusively. His word has no place in their lives because they're full. And I would ask you the question, Maybe Jesus isn't as real to you as he wants to be because there is no place in your life for him. He is the word of God, God's word of love and grace to you. He has come down to earth. There's no ladder to climb. Jesus' gospel is a down-to-earth gospel. It's God coming down into our mess and making it his own. But the thing is, is it's offensive to think that we're that broken and we actually have that much need. Do you know how many people I've talked to that said, I don't, I'm a good person, I think I'm okay with God. What is your definition of good? Because the good that God would accept is perfection, and that's none of us, which means that we need something bigger than ourselves. Secondly, we have to see Jesus not only as the Word of God, God's final revelation, and that His very person is the embodiment of His message, but He is also the Son of God. I am the Son of God. In John chapter 8, verses 38 through 47, He says, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. Notice how He refers. Jesus gives us a new, unique insight into the very nature of God, referring to Him very personally. Now, Father was used kind of loosely as the father of Israel, but Jesus makes it a personal statement that is a reality for every believer. And he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And what did they say? They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. The truth is a violation. Jesus, as, as, as we will be looking in a few weeks, says, I am the light of the world. The light is a revelation. It reveals, it, it illuminates what's in the dark. And many of us, it says that men preferred to remain in darkness because they don't want to know what's going on in their hearts. And you can't come close to Jesus without it being a revealer of what is fundamentally wrong and broken, which is what causes us to cast ourselves in dependence upon him. This is one of the primary issues, one of the most troubling interviews I've ever seen was, the, was an interview with our current president in which he was asked by an evangelical if he had ever asked God for forgiveness. And he said no. He actually goes, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Which isn't totally surprising based upon his general temperament and belief that he has the answers in and of himself. This is not a political diatribe, by the way. This is just a statement about the most public figure in the world right now who has claimed again and again to be a Christian. And based upon that interview, I would say that he fundamentally does not understand the most basic 
tenet of the Christian faith, that man is lost and needs God's grace. If you have never asked God for forgiveness, you do not understand the gospel, period. Just that simple. You can't say, I want Jesus as my savior, but I don't need forgiven. And I actually don't, why would you need Jesus as a savior if you've never asked for forgiveness? If there's nothing to be forgiven? No, we need a savior and we need a Lord because we're, we're bound to continue to go back and back again and again to the very same issues that, that caused all the problems to begin with, which is why we need Jesus to daily bring about the, re, the revelation of his complete work so that we can cast ourselves in humble dependence upon him, resting in him. W- listen what he says. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. So let's ask the question, what are the works of Abraham? Remember, John is the gospel of belief. So John is pushing into a very specific reality around Abraham. And what are we told about Abraham? Paul does an incredible exegesis of the life of Abraham in Romans in in his explanation as he exegetes the life of Jesus and shows us what the gospel is all about. And he says, listen, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That the gospel is about a return to Abrahamic faith that Abraham believed God. He entered into covenantal faithfulness. He went not knowing where he was going, but trusting that God would be the fulfiller of his promises. But what was the supreme promise that God made to Abraham? That through his seed, singular, not seeds, all nations would be blessed. And what Jesus is saying to them is something very, very profound. What he's saying is, listen, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That was the work of Abraham. He trusted God's promise that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. And these Jews that Jesus is talking to are looking at that fulfillment of that promise by looking at Jesus. And he says, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. Notice, just immediate attack isn't that, this just shows like the nature of human fighting. Isn't it weird how we can get angry and, and when, we, when we become protective of our own ideas of our egos and immediately they start casting insults at Jesus and, the, and what they're insinuating is, yeah, we've heard about where, who your mother is and we, we know that you were probably, you know, a child of, of, of some sort of sexual relationship before marriage. Don't tell us what we are to believe. We're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. That is a fascinating. You wanna talk about a bold statement? Think about the great world leaders of great religious systems. One of the things that makes Jesus so unique when you consider other world religions is that none of the great world religions, religious leaders or founders ever declared themselves to be God. Now there's lots of people throughout human history that have claimed to be God, like Manson, uh, you know, or Jim Jones. But usually the world sees through that for what it is. Muhammad didn't claim to be God. His, his follower, the followers of Islam are not building their faith around faith in Muhammad. It's faith in Allah. Buddha never claimed to be God. He gave ways toward enlightenment as a man who practiced those those ways of enlightenment. But Jesus says this. He goes, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I love that. I came from God and I'm here with you. 
I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. I'm the word of God. I am God's message to you. I am God's message of love and graciousness. I have come into your brokenness because you can't reach God in your own effort, is essentially what he's saying. He says, but why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. My word is telling you that you are fundamentally lost and you are so proud in your national identity, thinking that you're God's chosen people, but not recognizing that you're not reflecting the heart of God in any way, shape, or form. And so what he goes on to say is, you are, the father, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And he goes on to say, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You have not, as he said to Nicodemus, you have not been born again. You don't hear the words of God because, and this is, this is a really intense passage here, and it's a passage that has been misinterpreted through history. It actually is a passage that has been utilized uh, to support anti-Semitism. It's a, it's a passage that actually villainized Jews historically. But that's not what Jesus is saying because we're told in 1 John, that the entire world lays on, lies under the sway of the evil one. That Jesus has actually come not only to free us, because what does he say? He goes, he goes, let us go from here in the upper room discourse, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. He goes on to say, I have overcome the world. And here Jesus is saying, listen, I have come into this very place because, because humanity is trapped in sin and that there is a spiritual reality behind what is seen that is keeping people blind to the truth of who I am. And I have come, he's inviting them to recognize that they aren't only broken within themselves, but there is a spiritual blindness that has overcome them. He's not sharing this with them to beat them up. He's sharing this with them to bring them to a, to a recognition that they need to cast themselves in dependence upon him. Children of the devil is a fascinating statement. And let me just tell you that nothing is sadder than when, when God's own children become Satan's tools, which is possible anytime we enter into, into those behaviors that actually hurt the fellowship of community, when we, when we backbite one another, when we speak poorly of one another, when we do those things that actually are hateful. Those are the moments we, he says, whoever sins becomes a slave to sin. And that slavery immediately, the moment we, we enter into sin without repentance, without confession without casting ourselves in dependence upon Jesus what is the natural outcome of that is that we become we become the easy target of an enemy who will come after us and will go in for the kill and we're going to actually the moment we finish the series in the I am statements we're actually going to go into a short series on spiritual warfare because it's another thing like the two fish in water we can just become so ignorant of it we don't recognize it all around us we don't even know what it is and Jesus here is saying, listen, there is a real devil, there is a real dominion of darkness, and he has manipulated a sinful world, and he has blinded it, and he is the father of lies. And when you participate in that dishonest belief around your okayness with me, 
your, your idea of enoughness, you are essentially participating in his kingdom. And this is the very reason I came, is to actually bring, bring destruction and victory over the kingdom of darkness, which is what we fundamentally believe about the cross of Calvary, is that Jesus on the cross conquered not only death and sin, but he also conquered the dominions of darkness. Paul says in, what is, how does Paul define the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness? How does he define it? In Romans 1.18, he says, the unrighteousness of, of those who suppress the truth. And this is what Jesus is challenging them, that, that human beings who by their wickedness are suppressing the truth. In 1 John 2, 22 through 23, he says, John says again, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. And he defines the spirit of Antichrist as those who actually proclaim Jesus is not the Son of God, that Jesus is not the Messiah, that he is not the Savior of the world. And it says, he who denies the Father and the Son, this is the Antichrist, but he who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. What is Jesus saying? I am the Son of God. You, if you knew the Father, you would love me because I'm his Son. I have come to reveal the Father to the world. And you in your rejection show that you are under the influence of another. And what we need to understand is that there is hope for these people that Jesus is confronting because this is the whole reason he came and he is gonna go to the cross and deal with this issue, giving the real possibility of real freedom for all those that would put their trust in him. So here is why you're not listening. Quite simply, your lives are not rooted in God. Isn't that what he says? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And isn't this the very thing that Jesus deals with in the parable of the sowers? When he says, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, stand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet such a person has no root but endures only for a while, and when trouble or persecution arises on the account of that word, the person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, those, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for those who, where the word is sown on good soil, this is what a disciple is. This is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Finally, the final thing that Jesus says in this passage is, I am God. He says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, notice he doesn't even respond to the Samaritan because he doesn't care because he's come to save the world, not just the Jews. But he does say, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the, prophet, and the prophets died? 
Who do you make yourself out to be? Here we can see and learn something from Jesus around glory. Who of us don't want glory, want to be known, want to be appreciated? But notice what Jesus says. He says, listen, he he says, I have come to seek the honor of my Father, and it is he who seeks my glory. Through my obedience to him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus continually gives us the pattern of what the Christian life looks like. It is a daily surrender of our lives as presenting ourselves as living sacrifices that the life of Christ may be glorified in and through us by his spirit. And Jesus says this, he says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And here he is telling us, if you keep yourself rooted in me, you will never see death. Why? Because he is the one who tasted death for everyone. In fact, we need to understand the very words of Augustine. How is Jesus glorified? He is glorified. His exaltation actually comes through his humiliation. This is the upside down kingdom of the cross. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another, God says through the prophet Isaiah. But Jesus says here, the Father has actually come to glorify me. He has come to reveal his plan for human history through my laying down my life for the good of those who would want me dead. Jesus understands that they want him dead and he is allowing that narrative to be played out because in the Jewish people that wanted Jesus dead, we all find ourselves. And this is why Jesus is the one for the many and the many in the one because we all participated in his death through our very brokenness and through the fact that the entire sway, the entire world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The claim that if a man observe his word shall be freed from death is the claim of a fanatic or lunatic unless it is true. And so Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. He goes, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And here Jesus states it. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. I am who I am. I am what I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? because he was proclaiming himself to be one with God, to be the same God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. He says, I am, I was before Abraham. I am the son of God who has come into time, into my own creation. I have taken on human form and I have made humanity one with myself. I am the one who is also the word that was spoken in creation leapt into existence. And here he says it. I have kept his word. And notice what he says. When he says, I am, what are we told here? That God essentially has given his own name to Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus himself declared in John 17, 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. 
I want to just close with this simple statement. And it's not simple. It's so deep that you can drown in it. But it is the direct declaration of Scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15-20. through 20. He is, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so I ask you today, will you cast your trust upon this Jesus? For the whole purpose of John is this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He is the Word of God. He is the Son of God. He is God and deserves our total and absolute allegiance. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.